Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit around and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track -track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Hello. Are you ready for an exercise and desperately try to spin this out for long enough to make a convincing podcast episode? Um, sure, let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. You All might, right, you might want to tell the good listeners why we're, we're going to have to spin it out. Well, we're going to have to spin it out because this week we're talking about Thank You Girl, uh, the B-side from From Me To You. And, um, well, that's why we're going to have to spin this out. Well, um, you know, you, see, so you well, say that, but, you know, things could have been different because this was meant to be the A-side, wasn't it? It was, and I feel we may have had a lucky escape there. Yeah, you see, I wonder about that because when I, I, I hadn't, as far as I'm aware, I hadn't heard of uh, this song um, until maybe a few weeks ago. And the first few times I listened to it, I thought, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, lucky escape. Actually, there's a little bit more to recommend it. And, and I was just sort of, you know, um, positing in my mind whether or not that if we had heard it more, if it had been, um, you know, the A side instead of from me to you, possibly the Beatles' first number one. Whether or not it would have then had a little something in in its background that would have made it a much more popular and recognisable song. I think the fact that we haven't heard it that much, and possibly also that they didn't work on it a huge amount, means that it's sort of languishing away. I mean, I'm not saying it's a great piece of work, by the way. I just wonder that if history had been different and it had been given more prominence whether we might think more differently through familiarity yeah i mean that's definitely a possibility i hadn't heard this song probably in a good 20 years i would guess um because i had it on um past masters and i have no idea what happened to my copy of past masters it would have been on cd at some point i suppose um lost lost the time lost to moving house or something <laughs> yeah. i don't know gone 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 um and i have never once um thought about it since until we were um you know getting ready to do this episode it's all right it's not it's not their worst song it's not their best song it's i, I think it's a perfectly cromulent b-side it, it, it does what it needs to do um, I think you can tell that it's not as polished. I, I don't think there's any getting away from that. But it's it's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those things. Could they have worked on it a bit more if perhaps um, it was going to be... I mean, you wonder at what point it was then decided that from me to you was going to be the A-side. Is it that um, they decided on, on Thank You Girl and then Lennon McCartney came in and said to George Mine... Well, we've got um, from me to you here, um, or was it that they'd recorded both and then they'd made a decision? Because it could be if it was the former, if it was the case that they'd written both, um, and having them written from me to you, they decided that that's the one they were going to go with. Um, then, um, you know, the emphasis was taken off um, polishing. Thank you, girl. Um, but you know, we'll we'll find that file that under the list of things that um, we'll say we're going to research but never do. Because let's face it, yeah. we had a list of those in the last podcast, 
and it's only just occurred to me that I don't remember what was on that list. <laughs> we were going to keep a list, weren't we, separately? Yep. To say that we would go away and do our research in between episodes and we have monumentally failed to do that. So oh, I think we're relying on the, on but, the good um, folk of Mexico and Sweden to help out here. Yeah, I know. And Mexico and Sweden have so far not rushed to a rescue, but it's surely only a matter of time. Surely. So, you know, in, in defence of this song, I, th- I think there are there are signs that they had thought about it and developed it. So if you take the, the verses, you know, once we get past the oh, oh, kind of nonsense that's there, you, the verses are, are really, really interestingly layered because you get the first line where it sounds like it's principally um, um, John Lennon singing. And and actually, at that point, that's the point where I think, oh, do you know what? Some of these chord changes are a bit clumsy and a bit awkward. They jump around quite a lot. But then the, when they repeat the line, you then get a really interesting harmony kicking in. And suddenly you go, oh, hello, hello, that's, that's not bad. And when you do get those harmonies, that for me is where the song comes alive. It admittedly dies pretty soon after, but it does for a while come alive with with a really strong idea, a really powerful, um, um, you know, line in there with a you know powerful harmony. Yeah, I think the harmony. It's it's a weird. I, I do agree with that. It's it does. It's a weirdly divisible song into the bits which have clearly had effort put into it and the bits which have. No effort put into them whatsoever. Like you mentioned, the owls on the uh, introduction or whatever, that just seems like the laziest way to get this song started possible. There's just yeah. there's no attempt, you know, normally you would expect a little a little guitar riff there or a few quick chords or something, but that just like, I mean, it's not even really a Buddy Holly impression, is it? It's just, just two people going, ow. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's such a poor way into the song. But you're right, those harmonies have clearly had a bit of time spent on them. They're delivered, you know, enthusiastically. Mm. That helps to boost the melody a wee bit. It gives, you know, gives the song a bit of an anchor. And all that stuff is clearly not something which just spontaneously happens. It's something that you need to put a wee bit of effort into. And so, yeah, it does have that that weird divisibility about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think any of that goodwill, though, uh, dissipates when you get to the, I don't know, we would call it the bridge you know, where you get that that sort of slightly clumsy descending melody line. Oh, yeah. Um, with the kind of the call and response with the, the harmonica. Um, you know, they don't that doesn't stick around for very long, at least, before it then gets back into the the, the, the vaguely interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, if, um, if Ian MacDonald is to be believed, and, and who are we to suggest otherwise, that it, it, the, the verses are um, Lennon and the, the bridge or middle eight is... Uh... McCartney, um, and you can kind of see that I think in the way that they're put together. I, I, I that feels like a, a fairly clear division of labour. I would say, given that this was another song that was kind of written eyeball to eyeball, but it's unusual for McCartney to come up with something quite. I don't know. That's a, it's a really clumsy kind of middle eight, and particularly like lyrically, it's trying to be clever with kind of you know rhyming within the line as well as at the end of the line to try and give it a bit of a push, but it just. It's kind of corny, and it, it does drag the song down a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, so one of the things we did in, in the early weeks and that seemed to have forgotten about was was actually look at, at who produced covers of, of this song. And, and I did remember that um, on this one, and hardly anyone. 
I mean, you know, <laughs> that's a surprise. The usual names come up. So like the Smithereens, when the Smithereens were doing their, you know, their albums where they just did some of these early um, Beatles covers. And then there's lots of Beatles tribute acts. Um, and and then from late 1963, Mr. Russ Conway. Um, you know, and I, I'm not sure I'd ever knowingly heard a Russ Conway song before. And I didn't realise it was just that that kind of, you know, tinkly piano instrumental thing, um, yeah. and you know, it's it's frankly hilarious. So it's it's it certainly as a song, it's kind of not hung around. It's not been considered interesting enough to 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 have any any greater meaning. And I suppose even those people who eulogise over B sides of certain bands, you know probably can't muster much of an argument for this. I mean, there will be Beatles B-sides that that people will talk about as being, you know, amazing songs, some of which are slightly overrated. They're, you know, they're more appreciated than, than perhaps they deserve. Um, uh, Rain, I'm looking at you, but... Oh, spicy hot take. Well, not really. It's, it's just actually, it's, you know, you know when you, you get a song and you have to make it interesting by putting some backwards guitar on, you think actually maybe it's not that interesting a song in the first place. However, we will come to that. We'll and, get there. And by the time I, we get to it, I will probably have completely changed my mind, changed my mind again, flip back another 360 degrees, and I won't know which way I'm facing. But, you know, we'll, we'll see when that happens. You know, but this has not been considered significant enough to to live long in the memory, and that's why it just doesn't have the the even people reaching in and going, well, we'll pluck that one out and we'll cover it in order to look kind of cool, as will sometimes happens with you know obscure B sides. You know, it's how you show your reverence and your your musical knowledge by by going for something that's that's really really obscure. Yeah, and something the Beatles themselves did as well. I mean, yeah. that, was, that was how they managed to kind of flesh out all their kind of Hamburg sets and, you know, the Cavern Club sets as well. They're just constantly reaching for, for B-sides, more obscure songs, stuff that other bands simply weren't performing. So, you know, it's 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 not a recent phenomenon. It's, it's something they did themselves. And I suppose at least one reason for the um, kind of forgotten nature of this song is is scarcity. I mean, until until past masters and I guess rarities came along, it would probably have been entirely unavailable except by sort of bootlegs. So, you know, there's, there's that side of it as well. Simple unavailability will do it. And you could, I mean, to a point, you could make the same argument about something like rain, which you mentioned earlier, but with something like rain, you also have, you know, samples by the chemical brothers, giving it, uh, giving it a new lease of life, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, that helps to highlight those kind of, especially that mid middle sixties period, which is just, you know, no part of the band's reputation is kind of quite as unassailably perfect as, as that is in, in, in the kind of, in those kind of circles. And, and, uh, yeah, that, that kind of sampling, that kind of availability raises a profile of a song where something like this, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 if anybody has sampled this song and used it for something, I, I, I greatly look forward to, uh, to hearing it, but I haven't found anything and I'm very much doubting that there's, there's anything out there. No, um, so yeah, challenge. just, just, just straightforward obscurity. That is a challenge, but yeah, it's just straightforward obscurity. I think, uh, is, is, is part of it as well. And, you know, again, like the, the bits which are 
have, have some effort put into them. It's my Ringo moment. Um, like all those fills that he throws in at the end, mm-hmm. which the song doesn't require at all. You know, it's done. There's no need to have this sudden, all these pounding toms, just giving it that kind of push towards the finish line. But they're there. He's, he's putting in some effort there and the song doesn't fade. It stops. Whereas this is definitely a song where you get to about 90% of it. You thought, all right, just fade it out already. But it doesn't. It comes to like a proper conclusion. So it's not just a lazy, well, turn down the fader and hope for the best. What I think is interesting about that is that um, it almost, it doesn't fade in, but it almost feels like it's a fade in. It almost starts, um, almost feels like it, it starts after an edit. Like they've been playing for 10, 15 seconds already. Um, we've cut that bit out and we just start. You know, it's it's that sort of in media res thing. And and you think, okay, right. So it's interesting then that they do that at the start, but then they're determined to have the the full stop at the end. So I think that's that's a really interesting point. Um yeah, it, it, very, very interesting choices made. Yeah. With that they were <laughs> with that they were made of a in, in, in service of a slightly better song. But, yeah, but I'm not gonna to be too hard on that. I'm really no. I'm really not. It does it does help. It does it does give the song something. I'm certainly not gonna criticize it for it. But it's a sign of, of increasing craft, perhaps, about the, the way in which they're at least arranging songs. Yeah, there's confidence in it. Yeah. Yeah. And and from looking around at what's in the charts, they've got every right to to feel confident that they can do this with a B side because you know, I mean, there's some stuff in the charts when um, From Me To You was was on the way up the charts that is very familiar. There's an awful lot that has not stood the test of time. That's putting it mildly. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet there are some, there, there's at least one song in there that has a, a lasting impact in, a lasting impact in the Beatles story. We'll come on to that in a minute. You know, I, I, I find it quite interesting that you know, just before From Me To You gets to number one, we've got Jerry and the Pacemakers, How Do You Do It? By the way, was that the one that, that George Martin wanted them to, to record? How Do You Do yes. It? It was. So the fact yeah. that that's got to number one before From Me To You must have been, you know, an interesting little thing. You almost sort of think that George Martin must have said, told you, but, you know, that Lennon and McCartney and Harrison and Star and Star were going, yeah, but just wait. We'll just wait. We'll see who's remembered in 10 years' time. So are you, are you interested then in, in the song that has the lasting impact on, on the Beatles' legacy? I can't wait. Well, you, so you say that now. He's so <laughs> fine is in the... In, in the uh, ah, you uh, see? Uh, I know. Okay, and, okay. and what's really interesting about it is that it's there just before uh, From Me To You gets to number one. It's still lurking, not particularly high, but it's still lurking around as it gets replaced at number one by another Jerry and the Pacemakers song. Okay. Well, that is interesting. So it's been in the charts for, I think, 11 weeks. Only gets as high as 16. So it's... it's, Because what I didn't know... I mean, I think when I first heard... um, um, all things must pass, my sweet lord. I, I mean, I wasn't aware of the um, of the the controversy because I I wasn't that widely read uh, about the Beatles at the time, and that is um, what we call PI pre internet. So, wasn't something that was was easily accessed. Um, you know, and I wasn't aware that it had been a particularly big hit 
over here. So once you then become aware of it, you think, okay, well, well, you know, maybe, maybe George, bless him, you know, subconscious, blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe it wasn't that big a hit. Well, actually, it stayed in the charts for 11 weeks. Um, and yeah, it's all right. And it's exactly the kind of group that the Beatles would have been interested in. Uh, certainly a couple of years before they would have been, you know, listening to songs by groups like that and then turning it into things that they could have replicated um, in their act. Now, I'm, I'm not here trying to create a um, an argument for the lawyers of, of the various songwriters involved because that's all done and dusted. I just think it's it's interesting that that something like that would have stayed with him subconsciously, perhaps, um, for such a long time. Um, and then, you know, it comes out, um, you know, late 60s, as, um, as I believe, um, people will see on Get Back. Is there um, a point where he's, he's playing elements of My Sweet Lord or is it other things from All Things Must Pass? Uh, I think it's All Things Must Pass itself. Oh, okay. I don't remember hearing My Sweet Lord. Fair enough. I mean, but he would have written it around the time of, uh, say, yeah. Abbey Road. You know, it would it would have been one of the songs that he would have had in his armory that, um, you know, because it obviously with All Things Must Pass coming out reasonably soon after as well. So, you know, it's it's just interesting the way it's it's sort of there sitting in in the background. Um, you know, it just makes you wonder. Had he listened to it? Was he aware of it? Or maybe he was listening to Kenny Ball and his Jasmine. <laughs> well, as you say, there is a lot of stuff in the charts which really doesn't um, stand the test of time. And since you mentioned Mr. Ball and his jazz band, uh, it is worth mentioning that, you know, that for all that, um, you know, that particular song, for whatever reason, seems to have got stuck. It's entirely understandable why very little else would have done. There's there's a lot of dreck in there. I mean, you know, the charts always have a certain amount of dreck in them. That's kind of, you know, par for the course. Um, there's one or two little bits and pieces in there that are interested. One of one of one of my little uh, one of my little flames, um, Eddie Cochran, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, he's in there. That's always nice to see. Um, but you know, there's a lot of stuff which is just not is, is, going to be remembered by history, and with some degree of justification. So I mean, because obviously there's um, as as we when we've talked about charts before, when we were looking at um, maybe please please me, you know, there's posthumous songs by um, Buddy Holly in that presumably yep. the Eddie Cochran one would have been posthumous as well when did he die do you remember? yeah it would have been okay uh, yeah so early early examples of the industry uh, cashing in on sentimentality and um, the death of a of a star uh, yeah he died in 1960 okay okay so yeah so I mean quite quite a long time after his death really by chart standards anyway three years after he died um, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, Buddy Holly's been dead for a while as well. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. <laughs> yeah, there's also um, um, you know an interesting Andy Williams song, um, "Can't Get Used to Losing You," that's in there as well, which I first heard as um, a single towards the end of um, the Beats career. I mean, probably sort of eighty two, eighty three. Um, you know, the Beat being. Um, I think they may have been called the London Beat in, in America, but uh, uh, basically a scar group, um, at least to begin with. Um, so, you know, there, there are there are bits and bobs that, that you sort of recognise from from strange places, but it's still, 
you know, a long way from being the, um, you know, the the big 60s um, pop explosion that um, that you might sort of expect to see around this time. There's still a lot of, you know, dreck in here, if you want an expression. But then it's a little bit like if you watch um, the old repeats of um, Top of the Pop, say, in the late 70s, and you might think of it as being the era of punk and actually very few punk songs penetrated the top end of the charts because actually they weren't really that popular and it didn't break through to the mainstream until, um, I suppose, sometime after, but until it, it then got turned into something a little bit poppy. So we're kind of in that, that, that stage where we're waiting for groups like, you know, The Who and The Kinks and The Stones to come along, you know, and they're still a few months down the line um, from being from being there to offer some sort of balance to 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 the Beatles in terms of credibility and music. Well, absolutely, but you do also start to see the emergence of Mercy Beat as a sort of phenomenon within the charts as well, and it's not in any in any stretch of the imagination a dominant one. But like you said, like Jerry and the Pacemakers are are in there, um, and they they bookend. Um, the single uh, from me to you um, with how do you do it and what was the other one I, I like it I like it oh god I hate that song so yeah <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. Um, but you know so so but they're you know they're they're breaking through they're getting to number one and there's a few a few yeah. others kind of in the sort of lower echelons of the charts um, and you know that they the, they're the names that everybody's familiar with it's uh, it's uh, Billy J Kramer's in there and, and all that kind of stuff so you know there's there's um, there's a sense that things are starting to shift and and significantly starting to shift in a way that is now recognizable as the emergence or from a historical perspective from the as the emergence of this kind of new genre of music which is going to come to take up you know feral chunk of the charts um but which conspicuously wasn't there when we were talking about you know um you know ps i love you and, and love me do and all that kind of stuff so you know already only this tiny length of time into the beatles career we're seeing the profound influence that they're starting to have on the charts well so much so that if you look towards the tail end of um from me to use rain as a number one um you know, billy j kramer and dakotas are in the charts with do you want to know a secret and in, yeah, in the top five, you know, it got it got to number two. So you're then starting to see the impact of Lennon and McCartney's um, songwriting. And, you know, hey, listeners, if you really want to know what we think of Do You Want to Know a Secret, go back a few episodes and, and have a listen. You know, it's worth saying that... It's great. It's, it's, it's not, and with typically British uh, understatement, it's not the best song they've ever written. That's that's certainly a very valid uh, interpretation of that particular song. Yes, that's true. But I mean, again, also, you know, in the first week that um, From Me To You got to number one, Please Please Me is the single is still on the charts down at number 30. So, you know, and we're not we're only, what, a few months away from the Rolling Stones releasing I Want To Be Your Man. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like you said, the, the, all that songwriting stuff is really, uh, really starting to carry an impact out with the actual, you know, songs the Beatles themselves are releasing. Yeah, I, there's there were a few interesting things around, you know, and and again some songs that that you you would recognise um, and and would be celebrated for their, um, you know, their impact on the charts. Um, 
you know, again, just after for me to use been knocked off the number one spot by, as you say, you know, the Jerry and the pacemakers, um, you've got the crystals to do Ron Ron, which I think uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say is Phil Spector's wall of sound. I think it's, it certainly is. Yeah. But I mean, it's only getting into number 37, but it's there. Then just above that, uh, 34, you've got um, Leslie Gore, who says everyone, well, you recognize the song. It's my party. That's been in the charts uh, a few times since. Um, so, I mean, there are things around and, you know, you mentioned Eddie Cochran. We've also got the Everly Brothers. We've also got Ray Charles. We've got Dwayne Eddy. You know, there are some fairly well-regarded names. And there's also Cliff Richard. Um, and worth pointing out that that um, when From Me To You and Listener, remember, thank you, girl, hit the number one spot, Summer Holiday is in the chart having been a number one. Well, it's still kicking around um, in the towards the bottom end of the chart uh, when From Me To You uh, drops off the number one spot. It's been in there for, I don't know, four or five months. But there's another Cliff Richards single that's that's been in the charts, been in the top ten, and is now on its way down, but it's only hit number four. And you wonder if that's the start of the point where you know, the world is turning away from Cliff Richard, perhaps, as he becomes more of an entertainer and less of a rock and roll icon. I mean, even to the point where I, I even though I looked it up on the chart, not less than about 45 minutes ago, I can't even remember the name of that song. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, it's it's terribly easy to take the piss out of Cliff Richard. Go on, then. No, I've got nothing else to add. That's, okay. all, that's all I've got to say. It's just terribly easy to take the piss out of Cliff Richard. But it, I, I suppose the only thing that... I mean, this isn't in any way... Oh, Lucky Lips, that was the song. Yes. Lucky Lips was the other one. I just scrolled up because um, I'm under strict instructions not to scroll up when I'm talking because it creates awful background noise. That's that's correct. Very good. Well done from taking that note from your producer. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're welcome. It's one of those songs that um, I, I have no idea what Lucky Lips sounds like and I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly no. fine living the rest of my life like that. But, you know, for all that it is very easy to take the piss out of Cliff Richard, the, the sheer level of his success not just in the early kind of uh, 60s and late 50s is absolutely yeah. staggering and you know he he himself has always been very resentful of the Beatles for sort of basically coming along and, and sort of being better than him I think it's more or less what it boils down to but you know he's not an artist that I can find in any possibility of being able to defend in any way, shape, or form. But the fact of the matter is, he is unbelievably successful. He's still unbelievably successful now in, in 2022 yep. when we're recording this, never mind, you know, surviving the intervening decades. And that, I suppose, is worth mentioning. How much do you think it's worth in any other kind of form? I mean, he's never been an artist who's had any kind of meaningful impact I don't suppose in terms of actual music and in terms of influence I don't think anybody's ever really set out and gone oh you know who I want to be like Cliff Richard uh like maybe maybe in the very early cup first couple of singles but beyond that he's had virtually no impact uh in terms of musical development which is an absolutely staggering feat for an artist who's managed managed to sell that many records and have that many hits across more than half a century it's honestly slightly baffling but you know i mean he's in there he's still doing his thing and he will be doing it long 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 after um you know the beatles have, have been and gone so uh 
I don't know what the point of this is, other than I just, I don't know, I, I, like I said, I find him indefensible as an artist, and his music is universally awful. Um, he sells lots of calendars. He is one of, yeah, lots of calendars, but he is, he is an artist that is, is going to be kind of inescapable, you know, he's, he's always going to be lurking around the charts whenever we, you know, whenever we turn to, to the, yeah. the hit parade in order to sort of flesh out an episode to get a running time but it's, I mean, it's a bit of a flipping point, but, but. His his legacy at the moment is that he makes a lot of money from from selling calendar, calendars. He's one of the the biggest musical artists calendar sales. That sentence went completely by the by the by, but you kind of get the point. Um, out there every single year, still, goodness knows how old he is. He's still selling thousands and thousands and thousands of, of calendars that people are, are sticking up on on the wall. So. He has a, a legacy. It just is not one that I get. He's good in any way. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, actually, honestly, I mean, that's the thing. Has, he's 81, by the way. Thank you, Bing. Um, has he ever actually had a well-regarded song? That's that's the thing. It's it's astonishing how many hits he's had without one of them that you could point to. Like people might say, like they like "Summer Holiday" or it's easy to sing along to or something like that. But that's not that's not coextensive of actually being good. That's just you know light. Okay. Um, has he ever actually had a well regarded song? Um. Okay. So, right. Oh God, this sounds like I'm going to defend him. Um. Does selling hundreds of <laughs> does selling hundreds of thousands of copies count as being well regarded? I mean, are we, are we talking um, about well-regarded by... Critically well-regarded. Sorry, uh, JG, uh, musical snobs? Or are we talking about well-regarded <laughs> by the um, the, the record-buying public? Uh, I, th- I think well, we should, I mean, we should I mean, be careful about... Um, you know, it's, uh, OK, so fair enough. Ian MacDonald hasn't come along and, and written a, a scathing book where he looks at all of his recordings, um, you know, song by song. Um, but the chances are that, that if you go back, you might sort of look at, at some of his his early recordings, and people might have might have tried to compare him to um, to Elvis, as I think people did. So there might be something in there. But you know what? It's a rabbit hole that I really don't think we should be sending ourselves down. Why don't we flag it up as something? Perhaps we'll research before the next episode. Nudge, nudge, wink, sure, wink. Sure, let's do that. Okay, I, I will look forward to listening to your Cliff Richard research next episode. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're 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 right, and the whole the whole corality between popularity and, and quality is is perhaps something that we don't need to dive into in too much detail at at this point. But um, yeah, I still I still felt his success was worth mentioning in in some kind of context. I yeah, and it's let's let's not let's not go down the cliff. Um, the cliff rabbit hole. I mean, it's been a useful diversion from. Uh, uh, thank you. Don't fall off a cliff. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, now we see. Now you're going back to that young young ones joke, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> I was trying not to, but okay, right, fine. We've got there at the end. Um. Yeah. So that was thank you, girl, wasn't it? <laughs> when you get to the point where <laughs> yeah, for the last yeah. ten minutes yeah. you've not been talking about the song that you're meant to be talking about, I, th- I think you realise that that um, you know you've got a. A tight 30 minutes. Yeah, well, I think we were um, always quite cognizant of the idea that this was going to be a, a thinly stretched episode. And I think we have probably um, stretched it to breaking point. Shall, shall we leave it there? Yeah, sure. It's fine. And, and actually, then it's going to be interesting because when you and I next talk, obviously, we're going to then uh, move on to 
she loves you but also then after that we'll have the discussion about um the next b-side which probably has the words you and girl in there somewhere but i can't remember what it is um so it'd be interesting then to sort of think about whether there's any development um in those b-sides but you know it'd also be interesting to to just to, to sort of remind myself at some point, and again, I'm setting myself up for research that isn't going to happen, as to whether or not they were releasing these in America with the same B-sides. Uh, the B-side, this was the B-side of Do You Want to Know a Secret in America? Thank you, girl. Okay, so of course they're on a different Which release schedule. Not released as a single in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, thankfully. Although, <laughs> by Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. Well, you know, they've basically made an entire career off the back of that song. Yeah. So, you know, it is it is what it is. But um, yeah, all right. I think we'll probably uh, I think we'll probably draw a veil over this one uh, for the time. Oh, yeah, that was that was and professional. You can us by email. <laughs> Listen, we were doing quite well. I thought that was one of our most uh, one of our most seamless transitions. <laughs> right, good. Let's bring this to a close. You can contact us by email. We are uh, Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Um, next episode, well, I think you've already been spoiled in that, but we're going to be talking about She Loves You. And of course, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.